0: Chapter thirty eight of the Life of Kit Carson by Edward S. Ellis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In closing the life of Kit Carson, it will be appropriate to add two letters which were furnished at our request. Nine twelve Garrison Avenue, St. Louis, Missouri, June twenty fifth, eighteen eighty four kit carson first came into public notice by fremont's reports of the exploration of the great west about eighteen forty two to three you will find mention of kit carson in my memoirs volume one page forty six forty seven as bringing to us the first overland mail to california in his saddlebags. i saw but little of him afterwards till after the civil war when in 1866 I was the lieutenant-general commanding the military division of the Missouri, with headquarters in St. Louis, and made a tour of my command, including what are now Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. Reaching Fort Garland, New Mexico, in September of 1866, I found it garrisoned by some companies of New Mexico volunteers, of which Carson was colonel or commanding officer i stayed with him some days during which we had a sort of council with the ute indians of which the chief urre was the principal feature and over whom carson exercised a powerful influence carson then had his family with him wife and half a dozen children boys and girls as wild and untrained as a brood of mexican mustangs one day these children ran through the room in which we were seated half clad and boisterous and i inquired KIT, WHAT ARE YOU DOING ABOUT YOUR CHILDREN? HE REPLIED, THAT IS A SOURCE OF GREAT ANXIETY. I MYSELF HAD NO EDUCATION. HE COULD NOT EVEN WRITE, HIS WIFE ALWAYS SIGNING HIS NAME TO HIS OFFICIAL REPORTS. I VALUE EDUCATION AS MUCH AS ANY MAN, BUT I HAVE NEVER HAD THE ADVANTAGE OF SCHOOLS, AND NOW THAT I AM GETTING OLD AND INFIRM, I FEAR I HAVE NOT DONE RIGHT BY MY CHILDREN. I explained to him that the Catholic College at South Bend, Indiana, had for some reason given me a scholarship for twenty years, and that I would divide with him, that is, let him send two of his boys for five years each. He seemed very grateful, and said he would think of it. My recollection is that his regiment was mustered out of service that winter, 1866-7, to and that the following summer, 1867, he— Carson went to Washington on some business for the Utes, and on his return toward New Mexico, he stopped at Fort Lyon on the upper Arkansas, where he died. His wife died soon after at Taos, New Mexico, and the children fell to the care of a brother in law, Mr. Boggs, who had a large ranch on the purgation near Fort Lyon. It was reported of Carson, when notified that death was impending, that he said, Send William, his eldest son, to General Sherman, who has promised to educate him. Accordingly, sometime about the spring of 1868, there came to my house in St. Louis a stout boy with a revolver, life of Kit Carson by Dr. Peters, United States Army, about forty dollars in money, and a letter from Boggs, saying that in compliance with the request of Kit Carson on his deathbed, he had sent William Carson to me. Allowing him a few days of vacation with my own children, I sent him to the college at South Bend, Indiana, with a letter of explanation, and making myself responsible for his expenses. He was regularly entered in one of the classes, and reported to me regularly. I found the scholarship amounted to what is known as tuition, but for three years I paid all his expenses of board, clothing, books, etc., amounting to about $300 a year. At the end of that time, the priest reported to me that Carson was a good-natured boy, willing enough, but that he had no taste or appetite for learning. His letters to me confirmed this conclusion, as he could not possibly spell. After reflection, I concluded to send him to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, to the care of General Langdon C. Easton, United States Quartermaster, with instructions to employ him in some capacity in which he could earn his board and clothing and to get some officer of the garrison, to teach him just what was necessary for a lieutenant of cavalry. Lieutenant Beard, adjutant of the 5th Infantry, did this. He, William Carson, was employed as a messenger, and as he approached his twenty-first year under the tuition of Lieutenant Beard, he made good progress. Meantime, I was promoted to General-in-Chief at Washington, and about 1870, when Carson had become 21 years of age, I applied in person to the President, General Grant, to give the son of Kit Carson the appointment of 2nd Lieutenant, Ninth United States Cavalry, telling him somewhat of the foregoing details. General Grant promptly ordered the appointment to issue, subject to the examination as to educational qualifications required by law. The usual board of officers was appointed at Fort Leavenworth, and Carson was ordered before it. After careful examination, the board found him deficient in reading, writing, and arithmetic. Of course he could not be commissioned. I had given him four years of my guardianship, about one thousand dollars of my own money, and the benefit of my influence, all in vain. By nature he was not adapted to modern uses, I accordingly wrote him that I had exhausted my ability to provide for him, and advised him to return to his Uncle Boggs at the purgation, to assist him in his cattle and sheep ranch. I heard from him by letter once or twice afterward, in one of which he asked me to procure for him the agency of the Utes. On inquiry at the proper office in Washington, I found that another person had secured the place of which I notified him and though of late years i have often been on the purgation and in the ute country i could learn nothing of the other children of kit carson or of william who for four years was a sort of ward to me since the building of railroads in that region the whole character of its population is changed and were kit carson to arise from his grave he could not find a buffalo elk or deer where he used to see millions He could not even recognize the country with which he used to be so familiar, or find his own children, whom he loved, and for whose welfare he felt so solicitous in his later days. Kit Carson was a good type of a class of men most useful in their day, but now as antiquated as Jason of the Golden Fleece, Ulysses of Troy, and Chevalier La Salle of the Lakes, Daniel Boone of Kentucky, Irvin Bridger, and Jim Beckwith of the Rockies all belonging to the dead past. Yours truly, W. T. Sherman Trenton, New Jersey, June 23, 1884 In accordance with your request to give my recollections of Kit Carson, I would say that I met and spent several days with him in September 1866 at and near Fort Garland, Colorado, on the headquarters of the Rio Grande. I was then Brevet Brigadier General and Inspector, United States Volunteers, on a tour of inspection of the military depots and posts in that region and across to the Pacific. General Sherman happened there at the same time on like duty as to his military division, and our joint talks, as a rule, extended far into the night and over many subjects. Kit was then Brevet Brigadier General, United States Volunteers, and in command of Fort Garland, and a wide region thereabouts, mostly Indian, which he knew thoroughly. Fort Garland was a typical frontier post, composed of log huts chinked with mud, rough but comfortable, and in one of these Kit then lived with his Mexican wife and several half-breed children. He was then a man apparently about fifty years of age. From what I had read about him I had expected to see a small, wiry man, weather-beaten and reticent but found him to be medium-sized, rather stoutish, and a quite talkative person instead. His hair was already well silvered, but his face full and florid. You would scarcely regard him at first sight as a very noticeable man, except as having a well-knit frame and full, deep chest. But on observing him more closely you were struck with the breadth and openness of his brow, bespeaking more than ordinary intelligence and courage with his quick blue eye that caught everything at a glance, apparently, an eye beaming with kindliness and benevolence, but that could blaze with anger when aroused, and with his full square jaw and chin that evidently could shut as tight as Sherman's or Grant's when necessary. With nothing of the swashbuckler or Buffalo Bill of the border ruffian or the cowboy about him, his manners were as gentle and his voice as soft and sympathetic as a woman's. What impressed one most about his face was its rare kindliness and charity, that here at last was a natural gentleman, simple as a child, but brave as a lion. He soon took our hearts by storm, and the more we saw of him, the more we became impressed with his true manliness and worth. Like everybody else on the border, he smoked freely, and at one time drank considerably, BUT HE HAD QUIT DRINKING YEARS BEFORE, AND SAID HE OWED HIS EXCELLENT HEALTH AND PREEMINENCE, IF HE HAD ANY, TO HIS HABITS OF ALMOST TOTAL ABSTINENCE. IN CONVERSATION HE WAS SLOW AND HESITATING AT FIRST, APPROACHING ALMOST TO A BASHFULNESS, OFTEN SEEMINGLY AT A LOSS FOR WORDS. BUT AS HE WARMED UP, THIS DISAPPEARED, AND YOU SOON FOUND HIM TALKING glibly AND WITH HIS HANDS AND FINGERS AS WELL, RAPIDLY GESTICULATING, INDIAN FASHION. HE WAS VERY CONSCIENTIOUS, AND IN ALL OUR TALKS WOULD FREQUENTLY SAY, NOW STOP, GENTLEMEN, IS THIS RIGHT? OUGHT WE TO DO THIS? CAN WE DO THAT? IS THIS LIKE HUMAN NATURE? OR WORDS TO THIS EFFECT? AS IF IT WAS THE HABIT OF HIS MIND TO TEST EVERYTHING BY THE MORAL LAW. I THINK THAT WAS THE PREDOMINATING FEATURE OF HIS CHARACTER, HIS PERFECT HONESTY AND TRUTHFULNESS, QUITE AS MUCH AS HIS MATCHLESS COOLNESS AND COURAGE said sherman to me one day while there his integrity is simply perfect the redskins know it and would trust kit any day before they would us or the president either and kit well returned their confidence by being their steadfast unswerving friend and ready champion he talked freely of his past life unconscious of his extraordinary character Born in Kentucky, he said, he early took to the plains and mountains and joined the hunters and trappers, when he was so young he could not set a trap. When he became older, he turned trapper himself, and trapped all over our territories for beaver, otter, etc., from the Missouri to the Pacific, and from the British America to Mexico. Next he passed into government employ as an Indian scout and guide and as such piloted fremont and others all over the plains and through the rocky and sierra nevada mountains fremont in his reports surrounded kit's name with a romantic valor but he seems to have deserved it all and more his good sense his large experience and unfaltering courage were invaluable to fremont and it is said about the only time the pathfinder went seriously astray among the mountains was when he disregarded his Kit's advice, and endeavour to force a passage through the Rockies northwest of Fort Garland. Kit told him the mountains could not be crossed at that time of the year, and when Fremont nevertheless insisted on proceeding, he resigned as guide. The Pathfinder, however, went stubbornly forward, but got caught in terrible snowstorms, and presently returned, half of his men and animals having perished outright from cold and hunger. Next, Kit became United States Indian agent and made one of the best we ever had. Familiar with the language and customs of the Indians, he frequently spent months together among them without seeing a white man, and indeed became a sort of half Indian himself. In talking with us, I noticed he frequently hesitated for the right English word, but when speaking bastard Spanish, Mexican, or Indian, with the Ute Indians there, he was as fluent as a native. Both Mexican and Indian, however, are largely pantomime, abounding in perpetual grimace and gesture, which may have helped him along somewhat. Next, when the rebellion broke out, he became a Union soldier, though the border was largely Confederate. He tendered his services to Mr. Lincoln, who at once commissioned him colonel, and told him to take care of the frontier, as the regulars there had to come east to fight Jeff Davis. Kit straightway proceeded to raise the first regiment of New Mexico volunteers, in which he had little difficulty, as the New Mexicans knew him well, and had the utmost confidence in him. With these, during the war, he was busy fighting hostile Indians and keeping others friendly, and in his famous campaign against the Navajos in New Mexico, with only six hundred frontier volunteers captured some nine thousand prisoners the indians withdrew into a wild canyon where no white man it was said had ever penetrated and believed to be impregnable but kit pursued them from either end and attacked them with pure indian strategy and tactics and the navajos finding themselves thus surrounded and their supplies cut off outwitted by a keener fighter than themselves surrendered at discretion Then he did not slaughter them, but marched them into a goodly reservation and put them to work herding and planting, and they had continued peaceable ever since. Kit seemed thoroughly familiar with Indian life and character, and it must be conceded that no American of his time knew our Aborigines better, if any so well. It must be set down to their credit that he was their stout friend, no Boston philanthropist more so. He did not hesitate to say that all our Indian troubles were caused originally by bad white men, if the truth were known, and was terribly severe on the brutalities and barbarities of the border. He said the Indians were very different from what they used to be, and were yearly becoming more so from contact with border ruffians and cowboys. He said he had lived for years among them with only occasional visits to the settlements, and he had never known an indian to injure a pale face where he did not deserve it on the other hand he had seen an indian kill his brother even for insulting a white man in the old times he insisted that indians never commit outrages unless they are first provoked to them by the borderers and that many of the peculiar and special atrocities with which they are charged are only their imitation of the bad acts of wicked white men He pleaded for the Indians, as poor ignorant critters who had no learning and didn't know no better, whom we were daily robbing of their hunting-grounds and homes, and solemnly asked, What do you suppose our Heavenly Father, who made both them and us, thinks of these things? He was particularly severe upon Colonel Chivington and the Sand Creek Massacre of 1864, which was still fresh in the public mind. Said he, just to think of that dog chivington and his dirty hounds up there at sand creek who ever heard of such doings among christians the poor indians had the stars and stripes flying over them our old flag there and they'd been told down to denver that so long as they kept that flying they'd be safe enough well then one day along comes that derned chivington and his cusses they'd been out several days hunting Hostels and couldn't find none nowhere and if they had they'd have skedaddled from em you bet so they just let upon these friendlies and massacred em yes sir literally massacred em in cold blood in spite of our flag there yes women and little children even why senator foster told me with his own lips and him and his committee come out here from washington you know and investigated this mess that that derned miscreant and his men shot down squaws and blew the brains out of little innocent children, pistoled little papooses in the arms of their dead mothers, and even worse than this, them derned devils, and you call such soldiers Christians, do you, and poor Indian savages? I tell you what, friends, I don't like a hostile redskin any more than you do, and when they are hostile I fit em, fouled em, and expect to fight em hard as any man. That's my business. But I never yet drew a bead on a squaw or papoose, and I despise the man who would. Tain't natural for men to kill women and poor little children, and none but a coward or a dog would do it. Of course, when we white men do such awful things, why, these poor ignorant critters don't know no better than to follow suit. Poor things, poor things. I've seen as much of em as any man livin, and I can't help but pity em right or wrong they once owned all this country yes plains and mountains buffalo and everything but now they own next door to nothing and will soon be gone alas poor kit he has already gone to the happy hunting grounds but the indians had no truer friend and kit carson would wish no prouder epitaph than this in talking thus he would frequently get his grammar wrong and his language was only the patois of the border. But there was an eloquence in his eye and a pathos in his voice that would have touched a heart of stone, and a genuine manliness about him at all times that would have won him hosts of friends anywhere. And so, Kit Carson, good friend, brave heart, generous soul, hail and farewell. Hoping these rough recollections may serve your purpose, i remain very respectfully your obedient servant james f rustling the following tribute to the matchless scout hunter and guide is from the salt lake tribune he wrote his own biography and left it where the edition will never grow dim the alphabet he used was made of the rivers the plains the forests and the eternal heights he started in his youth with his face to the west started toward where no trails had been blazed where there was naught to meet him but the wilderness the wild beast and the still more savage man he made his lonely camps by the rivers and now it is a fiction with those who sleep on the same grounds that the waters in their flow murmur the great pathfinder's name HE FOLLOWED THE WATER COURSES TO THEIR SOURCES, AND, GUIDED BY THEM, LEARNED WHERE THE MOUNTAINS BENT THEIR CRESTS TO MAKE POSSIBLE HIGHWAYS FOR THE FEET OF MEN. HE CLIMBED THE MOUNTAINS, AND DISPUTED WITH THE EAGLES OF THE CRAGS, FOR POINTS OF OBSERVATION. HE MET THE WILD BEAST, AND SUBDUED HIM. HE MET THE SAVAGE OF THE PLAINS AND OF THE HILLS, AND IN HIS OWN PERSON GAVE HIM NOTICE OF HIS SOVEREIGNTY IN SKILL, IN CUNNING AND IN COURAGE. To the red man, he was the voice of fate. In him, they saw a materialized foreboding of their destiny. To them, he was a voice crying the coming of a race against which they could not prevail, before which they were to be swept away. End of chapter thirty eight. End of the life of Kit Carson by Edward S. Ellis. Recording by Laura Victoria.